0: I mean, this morning I was reading Michael Laurie's An Introduction to Landscape Architecture. There's nothing about slavery. Who built the gardens? Nothing about who built it, nothing about labor. And so there is no understanding of our participation building this country. We were the laborers and we bought the ingenuity. We have to have a different origin story.
1: My name is Suzanne Morse Mumaw and I'm the director of the University of Virginia Press. I want to welcome you to this edition of UVA Press Presents featuring Professor Walter Hood and Miss Grace Mitchell Tada, discussing their new book Black Landscapes Matter. Professor Hood is a MacArthur Fellow and Professor of Landscape Architecture and Environmental Planning and Design at the University of California, Berkeley. Miss Tada is an independent scholar, writer, and journalist. The voices of the nine contributors in this book take us back, but also take us forward. As Professor Hood writes in the introduction, these landscapes are the prophecy of America. They tell us our future. Welcome, Professor Hood and Miss Tata, to UVA Press Presents.
0: The book, Black Landscapes Matter, is um, a compendium of essays that came out of a lecture series at UC Berkeley, I want to say back in the fall of 2016, I think, that was the fall. And it came out of this uh, moment um, where Mike Brown had been shot. Seeing Mike Brown in the street, lying there for so many hours, it just kind of, I don't know, it kind of tugged at me, this notion that there are certain landscapes in which it's okay to see a black dead body in. No one was put off by that sight, other than black folk who were there. Again, you have to remember there was Trayvon Martin. There was just kind of this series of, of black folk dying, and they were dying in landscape. Trayvon Martin was in a housing complex. You know, he just didn't look I keep along in that housing complex. In the design community, I think we need to be urgent about this to talk about, well, why do these things keep happening and why do those backdrops stay the same? And I wanted to, at that moment, bring people together who look like me to talk about those issues. Then I wanted to bring in white voices. Why am I the only African-American professor you know, in landscape architecture over the last 25 years? And I thought having my colleagues actually participate in a kind of a dialogue at the end of the lecture, and I was hoping that it might compel them to do more work, and that it's not just on the black folk to do the work. You know, a lot of us, and I say us, black professionals, particularly in design, right now we're just tired. And I thought the night went really well, and. I said, then, well, let's, let's make a book out of this. We then asked all the speakers, would they be willing to participate and write essays, and then they agreed, and then we offered a few others to be part of that as well. This is not about this moment. This is about moments ago. Since we put together the book, the conversations have got a lot heavier. I do think I feel a lot different than I did four years ago.
2: How so? How do you feel different and how would the book have been different if you'd conceived of it now?
0: I think if the book, if we had the conference <laughs> this summer or whatever, it would have been much more of a call to action, more urgency.
2: In the book, Walter, you talk about how Black landscapes are prophetic um, and how they can be born again. What do you mean by that?
0: Our landscapes have not been invested. in and in this place that hasn't been invested in, you actually want to do things much more extraordinary. To get past the stereotype, they're scary, they need to be mitigated, we need more light. We, you know, all of these things that come out of fear. And to get past that fixed idea of the space, you have to do things in an extraordinary way. The way I could sort of get out of that kind of normative way of making landscape was, by looking at the environments that, that I cared about, that I was living in. And so one of the first things I did actually, I left Berkeley and I moved to a community that looked like me. I was at Berkeley for like five years and I had to move to West Oakland. And I moved to West Oakland because I just needed to see people that looked like me because daily when I was at Cal, I just didn't see people that looked like me. And it changes what you care about What you experience daily shapes maybe what you read, maybe what you might even say in a lecture. And so daily, I would go to Berkeley, I would get on a bus and go to West Oakland. And I would see things in West Oakland that I was familiar with, but that you just didn't see in Berkeley. And I started questioning, I was like, hmm, there are prostitutes on my corner. There's no prostitutes in Berkeley, okay? People living in their cars. People defecating on the curb and gutter. Last night I look out my window, there's a car, door open, someone, pants down, defecating on the sidewalk. Right? Again, you know, you see these things and you go, why don't we have public amenities? Why don't we have places where people can go to a bathroom? You know, we don't have these things in the public realm, and so now our streets have become those kinds of things. You know, my public realm is a mess here. Berkeley is clean. And so you start to see all of those things. And I started writing these, these little essays about those things that I saw. And then one day I was like, you should design to these things. And that changed everything. That changed everything. Because once I started designing for prostitutes, once I started designing for people drinking beer, once I started designing for people breaking in cars, once I started designing for those acts that seemed to be outside of the norm, it actually allowed me to have a voice not a voice for those proposals, but a voice for those people.
2: Can you give some examples exactly? Like in the landscape, what what sort of design decisions do you make when you're designing for people
0: in West Oakland versus people in Berkeley? Um, Again, in landscapes that haven't been invested in, you have to go big. And whether you're working at a small scale or big scale, you have to do more. It's like Splash Pad Park, uh, under a freeway, you have to see these places differently. We said, okay, maybe next to the freeway, maybe you can plant tall trees, make this beautiful screen, and then create this landscape, right, that maybe people can see the cars going by, but it's a landscape that's just really different. It's not, it's not mitigating the freeway. Designers come in and go, oh, you're not doing well in landscape architecture. Oh, let's do a community garden, let's paint the street, let's do all of this low-hanging fruit. You know, where we really should be going in and saying, we need to come big. To me, landscape architecture can provide beauty in people's lives. It can provide environments where people can be empowered, be empowered to think that they can be anyone they want to be. They can go any place they want to go. Our artistry, to me, is making space and creating these environments in which people can, can get sunshine on their face. Just a place where, you know, you can, you can revel and there are just not that many places. Now our medium is very simple. We have some paving, we have some trees, we got some site furniture, you know, I mean, it's not like we have everything at our disposal. So we have to like work and be very, very clear how we use that medium. The problems, I mean, you're not gonna fix the problems, but you can actually bring a moment in someone's life where they feel someone was compelled to make their environment better. Our Bayview Opera House project that opened a few years ago, I just remember the, the custodian there, was a brother from East Oakland, he was like, every time we would talk about the project, he's like, Walter, you know, they're just gonna tear it up, man, why are you doing this? They're just gonna tear it up, man. You know, and so if you're in a place long enough You'd, you start to get to a place where you think you don't even deserve good stuff. he's right? like, oh man, you're putting in steel? Oh man, you're doing that? So he couldn't believe all this stuff. And on opening day, he came up, he was like, man, this is awesome. I don't know how long it's gonna last. And then I see him like, you know, months later, he's like, man, this thing, this place is awesome. But you know, that's the work, you know? It's just been conditioned that, you know, we should live in these places this way. Our landscapes have been discarded. We saw that in urban renewal. You know, we even see that today by just not even even paying attention to places.
2: Can you talk a little bit about how that same phenomenon is found in the various other authors' pieces, like what's that look like in Detroit and Maurice Cox's
0: work that he writes about? You know, Maurice has this amazing diaspora that he's participated in, you know, since Charlottesville, Virginia, the housing community that he helped build, and then he was down in New Orleans. You know, and then from there he's in Detroit, and now he's in Chicago. And if you think about all of these places, these are places where there has always been a very strong black presence. My favorite joke of Richard Pryor is, you know, the slaves (laughs) landed. It's like the first thing they said when they stepped off the boat is, "Which way to Detroit?" (laughs) Right? And so Detroit had always been that kind of place where you think of Detroit, Motown, black folk, right? And so how do we? not just pay homage to it. How do we not lose that in these places? And I think Maurice, when he went to Detroit, he was really trying to, again, leverage all of that in a way to create a new kind of urbanism. And I think it's just really difficult because you're doing it in the face of economic speculation. I mean, capitalism, it's here, but you're also doing it where there has been years and years of disinvestment in a place. You have to completely deconstruct the whole system, right? I mean, you have to basically find value in those places without getting rid of people.
2: So what's Maurice proposing in
0: Detroit? Well, a lot of his attention was to the neighborhoods. Instead of thinking about the the CBD, the CBD, the CBD, to start thinking about those neighborhoods. And he was trying to marry designers, different designers to different neighborhoods where there's a sense of, you know, we want quality designers designing in our neighborhoods. And that has to start at the top. That's not something that's just going to come up from the bottom.
2: The other day in Landscape Studio, uh, you were talking about the role of trickster in the landscape. And Austin Allen, in his essay, he talks about the trickster as a constant presence in Black landscapes. Can you talk a little bit about how you think about that in your design?
0: I don't want to give away Austin's article, but the trickster is something that's in folklore in African-American history. And the trickster allows us to navigate the world. In my writing, I talk about that kind of transgressive way in which you can begin to do things. You know, one group thinks things are happening in an ordinary way and only few people kind of understand what you're doing. You know, in a way, is how we survive. Seventh Street in West Oakland is probably a good example. We would go to community meetings, and there would be these brothers in the back of the room saying, we want our five M's on the street. And I was like, what's the five M's? It's like Martin, Malcolm, Maya, Madam C.J. Walker. And I was like, oh, cool. And the project called just for streetscape, right? Paving, street trees, and lights. And I was like, huh, these guys want this other thing. And so I met with different people on the team. And I said, we need a gateway. You know, so I had to develop a language <laughs> that was benign. Oh, we need some lights. We need a bus stop. And they said, OK. And meanwhile, I was working with the community to make things that were at this other scale. The lights are 30 feet tall. The bus stop is 40 feet long, 20 feet tall. I mean, and so everything is out of scale, but no one knew it until it went in. I think that's the way that we can move the work. We can bring things in and they appear to be normative until they manifest themselves.
2: A Couple of the essays talk about looking forward and education in the context of landscape architecture. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: I think education is key, but I think it's gonna be really hard. I don't think it's something that the academy can do in landscape architecture. I think it's a broader thing in public education in general what story do we want to tell, right? And the story that we've been telling, it's left a lot of things out. And if you take our profession, which is kind of rooted in that story, I mean, this morning I was uh, writing the introduction for the IAM, um, International African-American Museum book that we're working on, and I was reading Michael uh, an introduction to landscape architecture. Uh, and Michael Laurie was one of my mentors, and he taught me, taught me how to sketch and all of these great things. And in his introduction, he has colonial gardens there, and he has these beautiful drawings of Middleton garden, plantation, and he talks about their inspiration, you know? He talks about, it's inspired by the French gardens. It's nothing about slavery, <laughs> nothing about who built it, nothing about labor, nothing about the condition of the country. And so there is no understanding of our participation building this country, where we know we were the laborers there, and we know, particularly with Middleton, we bought the ingenuity to move the water around to grow the rice, and who built the gardens? We have to have a different origin story. Over the last year, I've been teaching in in landscape architecture, trying to deal with post-colonialism, but there is a kind of naivety towards challenging those assumptions. I'm taken by how the students are not aggressively challenging, which suggests then that they were brought up in a world where they learned this thing, and it's really hard to unlearn it. I think it's gonna be really difficult. Uh, One of my good friends, Leslie Loco, who's South African, started the school in Joburg, she went to City College, to take over the program there. Um, and last couple of weeks, she resigned. She wrote, she didn't know it was this bad in America, but she also talked about what it was like being a black woman trying to run a program and trying to make change, right? Trying to shift the pedagogy and what you have to go up against. And the question is, what is that impetus to make you know people who don't look like me want to do that? There's nothing in people's lives that's forcing them to want to do that. And when you don't have that, it's really hard then to make that change.
2: Who do you hope will read this book? Oh
0: I think it's open to almost everyone to a certain degree. I think the students will find it, you know, some of the essays like Kofi's very revelatory. I think, you know, for officials. You know, people who work in cities, who are interested in cities. I think uh, Anna Brand's work uh, and Maurice Cox's work appeals to, you know, how how do you engage in these larger conversations at the city scale? And then I just think, you know, the average person should be able to pick it up and actually thumb through uh, the various essays. I think, you know, I think the essay Trade and Shrine, you know, it's almost like it could have been in a newspaper, right? I mean, someone writing an editorial. And so I think the book should have resonance across the scale, so I don't see it only as an academic book. I know a lot of texts are coming out now dealing with this moment. I know there's texts that's coming out dealing with monuments and the role of monuments and things like that in our lives, and I'm hoping that this is just part of this um, effort to get different voices out there talking about various things.
2: You can find Dr. Walter Hood and Grace Mitchell Tato's book, Black Landscapes Matter, at upress.virginia.edu. UVA Press Presents is a podcast by the University of Virginia Press and a member of the Virginia Audio Collective. UVA Press Presents is produced by Mary Garner McGee. Our theme music is Greylock from Blue Dot Sessions.